And Fusion is just one of the many things that we um, can employ uh, for the better of men of man, for the happiness of man, therefore for the glory of God. Hello, everyone. My name is Tim Cron, and I'm the host of the What's Our Future podcast. I'm a member of the Society of Catholic Scientists, and in this podcast, I interview other Catholic scientists about their research, how that research fits into some of the big questions we face, and as well as church teachings. We explore my guests' Catholicism, their religious journey, and what parts of church teachings they find challenging as a scientist and why. And finally, we discuss the future of their area of research, as well as sort of the future of faith and reason. Today, I interview Richard Bonomo from uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. Richard has worked on nuclear fusion for many years. And in today's podcast, we talk about fusion, its future, and then Richard's life as a Catholic scientist. This podcast, I believe, is unique, and I hope you value it. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast and let us know how much you like it by giving us a five-star reading. Thank you. So today, my guest is Richard Bonomo. Uh, Richard, welcome. Thanks very much for, for coming on the show. Thank you, Tim. I'm happy to be here. So you are a researcher in uh, fusion energy, the physics of fusion. Is that correct? Is that right? Oh, that's pretty close. Uh, I am an electrical engineer, and uh, so I've done a lot of fusion-related research and also done research related to, might say, fusion engineering uh, and also in the near-term applications of nuclear fusion, my role being primarily an ancillary role, helping the people who are doing the, doing the uh, research work for their degrees has been my primary role. Okay. So you've been doing that for how long? Well, uh, you can say from 1978 to the present day, So, but that's actually, there's actually been a break because for, for a couple of years I was involved in the hybrid electric vehicle team on the UW campus and also in the Space Astronomy Laboratory on the UW campus, yeah. uh, which was not directly fusion related. So there was a, you know, like an 11-year gap there in my 40-something year tenure. <laughs> um, well, space astronomy is largely about plasmas, right? So is that... Yeah, so it's as related because the, yeah. the it is a lot of plasma physics and li the lingo is plasma physics. You have to learn just a few astronomy dependent terms to understand what people are talking about, but the physics is the same. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, like me, you're a member of Society of Catholic Scientists, and that's correct. You know, one of the things you did recently, which I was very uh, thankful for, was you organized a gold mass. Uh, at your church in Madison, Wisconsin, at Holy Redeemer, Redeemer Church. And the Gold Mass is a mass specifically for people who are scientists, technologists, engineers, mathematicians. You know, the church has masses for different uh, professions. And I, have to tell you, I have to tell you, Holy Redeemer Church is amazing. I, you know, that altar just stunned me. I was sitting in the pew just staring at that thing for... 20 minutes. Uh, it's, it is so beautiful. Yes, it is a beautiful church. And the first time that people walk in, they tend to be floored by it. Um, it was built by Germans in 1869. And um, it was modified a bit in the, 18, in the 1890s, I believe, when they added a, a chancel and uh, raised the roof and put a, the, the, the vault ceiling in and, and added more artwork. 
Um, and there's probably some additional uh, modification to the artwork in the 20s or 30s. I'm not really sure what the timing is, but it's, it's a stunningly beautiful church, and it managed to avoid the craziness of the 60s and 70s when they were destroying <laughs> beautiful churches everywhere. Yeah. I think because the uh, pastor and the congregation was very stubborn, so they managed to, to keep it looking nice. So we still have that resource and um, this beautiful place to worship God and be in the presence of God. Because besides the real presence, uh, we have a place that looks beautiful, where it looks like the yeah. house of God. So I, I know that um, you know in the last few years, at least for me, beauty has become one theme that people are you know trying to embrace and and think about in terms of our religion. And I know with the rose window in Notre Dame in Paris was one which I just stood in front of and stared at for. After mass, we went there for Sunday mass, and just it was just amazing. Um, and you know, it, it's it's interesting how in paintings and artwork and things like that, you just you just feel different looking at them, and and feel um, you know presence and the beauty just just makes makes the religion come more alive for me. Anyway, have you been there? Yes, I have. I've had the privilege of being um, of seeing a number of the uh, large churches in uh, France because we, uh, a bunch of us from Holy Redeemer, uh, under the guidance of then Father uh, Kevin Holmes, uh, went out to a World Youth Day in in France in 1997. There were 20 of us, and uh, so he we went to Chartres and saw the cathedral mm. there, Notre Dame, and we saw Notre Dame de Paris, and he saw the cathedral in Rouen. I can't remember the name of it. Um, and uh, a few other places, so it's uh, it's it's gorgeous. And uh, of course, when you realize those places were built, they looked very different. They were very colorful, and the stone was new, and the statues were new. And yeah, you know, it's kind of funny. You go see these very old churches and and uh, places in Europe like that, then you go to St. Peter's in Rome. It seems modern because it's only built in the sixteen hundreds, hundreds. You know? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It's uh, oh, geez, that's nothing. You know, it's sort well, it's of like what. Been- Big, beautiful church, but it's, it's relatively young. That's yeah, the funny yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, good. So, what we want to do first is just talk about fusion, fusion energy. I know you gave a talk. It's on YouTube. I'll, um, I'll put the link to that um, in the uh, uh, area below the podcast and so people can go view it. But why don't we jump into fusion, what fusion is um, in general, and how does that then... Um, integrate with your work. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, well, nuclear reactions, um, well, actually really all chemical and nuclear reactions, involve a change in mass. And if you take very heavy elements like uranium, and thorium, plutonium, uh, and you split the nuclei of those uh, those atoms, and then you, if you were to measure up the mass of the products the uh, of those of that splitting and compare it to the mass of the original uh, atom you discover that there's a slight difference a slight reduction in the mass and that reduction in mass is converted into um, the the energy of movement of the various particles that go flying off after the reaction so when you if you have a, a plutonium or uranium nucleus sitting there and you split it by hitting with a hitting with a neutron for example the part, the the various pieces go flying off at high speed. Um, the kinetic energy represented by those things is fueled, if you will, 
by the difference in mass between the products and the reactants. And that's the basis of nuclear energy and nuclear weapons and nuclear everything that involves a release of energy. And that process is called fission, which is a splitting. And of course, the term fission is used for in cellular biology too, when a cell splits and it reproduces and such. So it's a very general term. So that's nuclear fission. Now, nuclear fusion is the opposite. If you take very light elements like um, uh, the hydrogen or deuterium, which is an isotope of hydrogen with uh, one neutron, or tritium, which is, again, an isotope of hydrogen with two neutrons, or sometimes boron or helium-3 or these other things, you, you put them through various reactions where they are caused to stick together. Well, it turns out that if you if you look measure the mass of the things you put into the reaction and the larger uh, nuclei which come out, you again get a loss of mass. And that mass is turned into the kinetic energy of the things just go flying out when the reaction takes place. As well as also other radiation, which I sort of skipped over in the fission reaction too, they're gamma rays and things like that that come out. Well, it turns out that if you, so if you split very heavy elements, you get surplus energy that turns, turns into the, the kinetic energy of the products. Right. If you fuse very light elements, you get excess energy, which turns into the kinetic energy of the products. So it turns out these two extremes uh, come together in, I think it's iron 57. Uh, I hope I'm not wrong about that, but iron, that isotope of iron, I think, has the lowest binding energy per, per new nucleon than any other element. So in natural processes and stars and whatever, if, if the fusion and fission reactions all go to their logical conclusion, you wind up with iron. And I believe out in the cosmos, there are these dead stars that are basically balls of iron. Right, right, and that's why because that's yeah. the uh, that 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 is the lowest energy state for for nu- for nuclei. So that's the basis of fission and fusion energy. Now, uh, of course, you know that for nuclear fission reactors you have to get these uh, very heavy elements out of the ground and refine them uh, to get the fizzle uh, the fissionable isotopes. Uh, expensive process, and then when you put them in a reactor. The beauty is that fission reactors work extremely easily. You just put these things together in the right geometry, and it, it just works. You, you know, you start getting the fission reactions go take place and a chain reaction. In fact, they have to be careful; they don't go too far, and uh, you have to control rods to slow them down and speed them up and whatever. And you can do all sorts of marvelous things. Uh, nuclear, you can generate power. You can generate electrical power through a steam process. Typically, you can generate, uh, you know, heat for industrial processes. You can have very high specific impulse rockets, which you know we actually built. We've actually built nuclear rocket engines back right. in the sixties, yeah, which are among the most efficient around. But of course, we don't use them right now for various reasons, mostly political. Right, right. Uh, of course, one of the problems with nuclear uh, fission reactors is that you get these long-lived radioactive isotopes that are waste products, and some of them are biologically active, like strontium and such. So you don't want them getting into the environment. So you either have to reprocess them uh, to get rid of them, or you have to store them away in some for some thousands of years, or do something. And um, and of course, the long-term storage is a very uh, complicated problem practically because a civilization has not been around long as long as some of these things need to sit uh, to to yeah. cool off uh, and become something benign and. Um, uh, and and in the in the chemical and nuclear reprocessing to you know get rid of them is uh, fraught with uh, tactical and especially political difficulties. You have to sort of ship these 
waste products around that causes uh, angst among certain members of the population, sometimes for good reason. So um, a lot of this stuff is just sitting in waste repositories on the sites of nuclear reactors, just sitting there (laughs) waiting for us to do something with them. Uh, Nuclear fusion reactors have the have the uh, problem that they're not hard, they're not easy to build. We don't have a functioning power-producing reactor yet. And we are getting closer, I'm happy to report, because uh, for a long time it was 50 years in the future, and with 50 years and 50 years, years. Time, 10 years goes by, 20 years goes by, it's 50 yeah. years in the future. Yeah. That actually seems to be getting shorter now. Uh, but, uh, but you know, the sun has a very easy time of it uh, because, you know, the it's all done by gravity. So you get enough stuff hanging around eventually gravity compresses it and you get heating from compression and a fusion reaction takes place naturally and it goes along very naturally without any problem so i look in the sun in the sky and i see the sun burning there and it's mocking us and saying ah so you have such an easy time why is it so hard for us but you know we're trying to do this on earth it's a lot more complicated and uh fusion reactions unlike fission reactions are, are, are just take a lot of work to make so we're still working on making it work and we're to the point where we're pretty sure we can make it work from the physics perspective. So now we're trying to work on the engineering problems that will be associated with various forms of fusion reactor. Uh, this will happen. Uh, now, one of the exciting things that I talk about in my video um, presentation, which I gave a couple of times to different groups, is that uh, people in my own research group some years ago uh, realized that uh, helium-3 is probably in large quantity on the moon. And they right, said, it oh. is, yeah. so they went back to the Apollo data, and sure enough, it is. So they're the ones who sort of realized this, and they sort of brought forth the idea that it would be very uh, good because there are helium three, there are fusion reactions involving helium three that are extremely clean in the sense that they don't produce any neutrons. Uh, now, the nice thing about reactions that don't produce neutrons is that if you don't have neutrons flying around, you don't have you're not irradiating a structure that can turn radioactive. And you're not causing materials damage. And also, you may be able to avoid a heat cycle. Now, uh, when you have to use a steam cycle or a heat cycle to convert you know, kinetic energy particles to heat to electricity, there are certain inefficiencies which come in that you really can't get around very easily. But if, you have, uh, if your fusion reaction produces just moving charged particles, well, then you can, in theory, capture the motion of the, those charged particles with 100% efficiency, or very nearly so, and it goes to direct, direct electrical, electrical energy generation theory. So if you can do that, well, you have a source of uh, energy which is uh, very clean, uh, produces no waste products whatsoever, not even irradiated building materials that have to be you know, set aside for a couple hundred years, uh, and uh, be very efficient. Uh, and apparently, I think a shuttle load of if you if you could bring a shuttle uh, fill a shuttle payload with helium three cylinders that are compressed at some pressure, and brought it back to Earth, you can take care of the electrical energy needs of the of the United States for I think for a full year based on on that. Uh, now, of course, helium three though is extremely rare on Earth, extremely right. rare. Uh, in fact, I think the only place we really get it is from decaying nuclear weapons, where we have tritium, we reduce tritium for that, and they decay into helium three. So. Um, but having an arms race is not a good way, not a good justification for producing helium three. But it is on the moon, so uh, now all of a sudden the moon, instead of coming this 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 thing which we just want to go to for some strange reason, now becomes actually a natural resource we can mine, and um, and uh, and which in the future we can use to power power uh, civilization on Earth. And not only that, but it turns out the gas giants have a lot of helium three too. So in the future we can go start mining 
helium-3 from Uranus and uh, Neptune and other places and bringing it back here and actually have, you know, being able to do the power. And, and you know, and it's with the, the helium-3 content here would power human civilization for something longer than the age of the universe. Oh, my goodness. I mean, so I mean, yeah. the moon would take care of us for any reasonable period of time that you want to think of. But, you know, we could actually power human civilization at a high rate for, you know, much longer than we're going to be around, much longer than the sun will be around. I mean, they'd just end any concern of energy crisis on Earth, at least, if we could do this. And, of course, what brings my motivation for being in fusion, uh, I've, I've felt a call to work in this field since I was a kid. And it's primarily because I could see there was really no other option, practically speaking, for powering human civilization in the future. And I took this as a vocational call to actually devote my professional life to that because we need a long-term solution. You know, we have to stop thinking in short terms. Um, fossil fuels are going to run out sooner or later. You cannot, you know, eventually, right. I don't know when if it's, you know, whether it's 10 years, 100 years, or 1,000 years, they're going to run out sooner or later. So we need something, and uh, I don't think terrestrial solar panels and wind turbines are going to do it, uh, or or any of the other things you can do to supplement things. But I think we need something that's pretty uh, energy intense and power dense uh, to power human civilization for the next thousand, several thousand, or million years, depending on how long mankind lasts. Right. So. That this has been a, a, request, a quest motivated by religion to me, as I figured this is something God called me in particular to work on. Not necessarily going to accomplish anything great personally, but at least it's something yeah. uh, that you know I can contribute to in some small way. You know, um, you're a lucky man because uh, you know one of the things I struggle with is you know what is God calling me to do, mm -hmm. and. It's been a very long struggle for me because, you know, I'm never sure. And I always admire people um, and a bit of jealousy when they feel they have found something that they are convinced is, is what their calling is. And, uh, you know, one thing, by the way, that I have some students working on is how to build a supply chain on the moon. And one of the things we were looking at actually was helium-3, um, how to get it, how to mine it, how to contain it. Uh, how to move it to a launch facility. Turns out there's lots of oxygen on the moon to use for yep. rocket fuel. But the, the one thing that's it's proven to be very challenging is how to price these commodities. Mm -hmm. So how do you price oxygen on the moon for the various uh, customers who want to use it either for habitats or for rocket fuel? Mm -hmm. uh, and the various metals, there's a lot of metals, different kinds of metals to be mined. Mm -hmm. And, but also for commodities that are brought back to the earth, you know, how do you, how do you price all this? And that's one of the things I've also been working on as a, as a, as a kind of a pricing architecture and how one would, uh, take something like helium three, which could have a very strong, uh, demand, you know, from, from what you just said. and and bring it back and have it be price effective and mm -hmm. it makes sense for us to be using it as one of the the energy channels on a on a fusion reactor i mean i know there's lots and lots of different fusion reactor designs and approaches mm -hmm. um which which one does the helium 3 um use for you know is it the magnetic confinement inertial confinement which which approach does it use 
Well, we're not using anything yet in the sense that we haven't built any power reactors. Uh, helium-3, helium-3 fusion outside of, a, outside of a, uh, an accelerator laboratory was first demonstrated, as far as I know, in my research group's laboratory in, I think, it's about 2005 or 2006, when one of our right. graduate students actually did helium-3, helium-3 fusion in an inertial electrostatic confinement fusion device. Uh, and I think that's the first time it has been done in a fusion device. Uh, it is uh, how we do it in the future. That's anybody's guess right now uh, because it can be used with any number of things. It probably would not work well with laser fusion because you have to have a frozen pellet for right. laser fusion. <laughs> I don't think they'd be freezing helium-3 necessarily. They might, but I don't see that happening. Yeah. But uh, but uh, but you know, polywells, if they ever work, uh, or tokamaks or stellarators, mirrors uh, of one sort or another, uh, the um, colliding spheroid uh, devices that are being built by uh, by um, Trial for energy, for example, you know it could work in any of those things conceivably if you can, if you get the conditions right, and that's that, of course that's the big question: can we actually get the conditions we need for that fusion to take place? Is is there any any approach that you think shows the most promise, sort of regardless of what the fuel is? Uh, is there any approach that you think would? Um, it, it, you mentioned before how the use of nuclear, nuclear fusion reactors, at least in my lifetime, has always been, you know, starting in the 70s in high school. Mm-hmm. You know, when I first learned of these things, they've always been 30 to 50 years out, and that's been true up until today. But you said that that's starting to contract. You know, what's, what's causing that? Is there a specific technology or approach that's starting to show promise? Because I know there's been an uh, immense amount of venture capital uh, put toward fusion reactors and funding, you know, these large efforts. Uh, which one do you think is, if you're placing a bet, I guess, putting you on the spot, but, you know. Oh, my. Well, that's uh, that's a hard thing to say. Uh, and I hate to make, be too categorical because I really don't know which, which one's going to pan out. And I don't know if any of the current ones will actually pan out in the end. Yeah. Uh, my my suspicions are we're going to make several of them kind of work, and that we're going to stumble upon something which which a third another approach which actually is oh we should have done that and it's going to be a lot easier and more efficient. I'm really expecting that to happen, honestly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, Eater is going to run. It's a big tokamak in France. It is going to run eventually. It'll be a good engineering experiment, if you will, because we have to deal with all sorts of problems we didn't have to deal with before. Uh, so I, I think that's. But I don't think personally I don't see that becoming a reactor design myself. Uh, it is certainly about a lot easier if they can do helium three because that, that drops away a lot of the complications of the, of the system and the and, and the reactivity of the device. You're right. Um, the um, uh, certainly the triophy energy approach, or I guess they're, I'm not sure they call themselves that, and it might be TAE energy or something like that. I think they changed their names. But they seem to be onto something pretty good there, uh, and uh, that is attracting a lot of venture capital, which is why I'm yeah. optimistic. Because all of a sudden, you have people who actually think this is an investment that's worth making, and not just as a philanthropic thing, but something that might actually make money in their lifetimes. And that's that's very exciting to me that you have people who are fairly savvy and actually think this, because that's new for me. Because when I was yeah. a grad student for years after that, it just was not a thing. I mean, private companies. Working in fusion, we're all getting government funds, and there's no expectation of a return on investment. 
Um, yeah, that, yeah, that's the one thing that's impressed me is the fact that, that you know, when I read uh, the various venture capital uh, uh, newsletters and other websites out there, this this the, this just very strong increase in the investments uh, from the private sector in this, which, like you said, clearly indicates that they feel that there is something here which can, even if it's 30 years out, it provide an investment. Uh, return on investment for something like this that's that's a key indicator uh, uh and and you're right i i and and that's why i've been i am glad you joined us because uh giving some insight into this is i think is important for everybody so my own feeling is that in the in the in the more distant future you know sixty to hundred years out, I think fusion reactors are probably going to wind up being exploiting some physics principle we haven't really stumbled upon yet, maybe something in terms of solid-state fusion involving uh, tailored crystals with using interstitial space of atoms to achieve high levels of alignment and then managing to cause the fusion to take place within those crystal lattices by manipulation of one thing or another we can't figure out yet. Right. Uh, and I think it's probably going to wind up having to be that. And in fact, there probably be a couple of different technologies that are being used, depending if you're building a on the size of the power plant you're building. I mean, if you're building a five gigawatt uh, fusion plant, you might use a different technology than one which is going to be, you know, uh, developing only, say, 100 kilowatts. Um, that's all speculation. We, Of course, we really don't know. Um, I say, but if, if we can harness the helium-3, that just makes, and we can actually make the things work with it, and it just makes life so much easier and it's so much more efficient yeah. and you can build a fusion power plant using whatever technology you want, and it'll last for a long time instead of having to be replaced every you know, 15, 20 years because the neutrons have destroyed the structure. <laughs> so uh, you, the solid-state example you use, that is, um, that is not what we would call cold fusion, right? Well, it probably would be something related to that. Uh, the cold fusion thing is still being researched, actually. Yeah, uh, but I have no idea where that's going. But there might be something to be learned from that, even if it didn't actually work per se. Sure. Uh, and I, I just tend to think that um, you know, getting the, the point is to get the nuclei close together, and if you can figure out some way of doing that besides heating things up or slamming things together, perhaps using some clever arrangement of of, of, of molecular lattices, you know, you might be able to get it done that way. There is a fellow who claimed to be doing nuclear, getting nuclear fusion to go on by, uh, by the by creating ultra dense deuterium on a metallic surface and hitting it with a, a actually a low power laser and getting getting fusion out. But um, something interesting is happening there, but we, it's not clear exactly yeah. what because you're not getting any neutrons from that reaction. Uh, <laughs> Did you uh, were you around in the fusion area when in I think it was in 1986 when uh, the Pons and Fleshman's. The Pons and Fleshman debacle, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, I call it a circus. You know, you call it debacle, but I, I remember it distinctly because I was in grad school, and one of the uh, nuclear physicists on, on our faculty, a senior faculty professor, was in, was involved with them in some way, and I remember when the news came out. It was just this explosion of interest and activity, and he gave a. Uh, colloquium on it, and it was packed to the rafters. And I remember it was just a six-week period from when he gave his colloquium, and there are other grad students who wanted to do their dissertations on this stuff, and 
And I think so many professors at University of Arizona were were working on the theory of it or trying to reproduce it because they, they all had, literally, they all had dollar signs in their eyes and, and Nobel Prizes in their eyes. I remember one uh, person from astrophysics, a theor- theoretician, he just dropped what he was doing and he spent six weeks trying to come up with theory. And it was everybody across campus and across many campuses. And I remember after about six weeks, it was like, yeah, don't think there's anything here. It, it was just the most interesting thing to watch because, you know, I was already working on my own stuff and you know, I just saw this circus just come to town for about six weeks and then just kind of disappeared. It was a very, uh, very fascinating thing to watch. A lot of wasted time, but I, I, I think it's, you know, as a scientist, you know, something like this happens, you have to, to go after and determine is there something here or not to your point with the, uh, a uh, person doing deuterium, you know, with radion laser, um, you know, it may or may not be there, but you have to to see. Yeah, I think cold fusion took a huge hit after that, but um, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. All right, so let me let's pivot a bit to, um, you know, one of the things I let me back up. One of the things I I've I find fascinating in, in a lot of the lectures I see online or colloquium or things is, especially when it comes to science and reason, people always sort of pivot to the, to the, um, excuse me, the, the kind of the big question, you know, creation of life, creation of the universe, evolution, things like that. Is there a, a place in kind of these major large questions for, understanding fusion and being able to to harness it in some way well uh just as i was more or less stated already i I regard it as uh something which is there for us to use uh which is put there deliberately as like most things i think are i mean i think that you know when god created the world by whatever means and which i'm sure took place over many billions of years using natural processes you know, there are things there for us to find, to use, uh, and to understand and to enjoy. Uh, I, I really think of, um, and fusion is just one of the many things that we um, can employ uh, for the betterment of man, for the happiness of man, therefore for the glory of God. Um, and we need to power the human race in the future in case we do have a long future. And um, so I think we're just, it's just a matter of exercising proper stewardship by finding ways to do this. Uh, and I don't regard fusion per se to be a big philosophical thing in and of itself. It's just one of many tools, like you know, discovering fire and inventing ways to make fire, and discovering you know, discovering metals and finding ways to extract and form metals. It's just another one of these things in the chain of of the science and technology that we use for uh, to benefit man and to make it possible for more people to exist comfortably and more people to come to knowledge of God because they can exist and not have to worry about survival every day. Right, uh, exactly. Um, is, do you consider fusion energy to be a renewable energy? Well, there's really no such thing as renewable energy, strictly speaking. Right. Uh, because anytime you engage in a process like this, you're, you're transferring energy from one th- form to another, or one place to another, and um, and the entropy always increases. 
So uh, it's renewable, and it's, it's not really renewable. It's just that the source is so large, it's unlikely that we're going to run out in our lifetime as a species. I mean, solar energy is not renewable. Wind energy is not renewable because it all draws its power from the sun. Ultimately, the sun has a finite lifetime. Sure. Um, the difference is that we're not extracting for our local environment and processing for a local environment. But So I would put fusion, make renewable in the same sense that solar photovoltaic cells are represent renewable energy or the wind represents renewable energy. Um, they all involve mining of some sort, whether you're mining you know, coal or oil out of the ground or whether you're mining, you know, the the stuff from the sun. I mean, it's all, it's all, it, none of it's really truly renewable, you know. <laughs> but it is essentially, if, if potentially, essentially infinite, right? I mean, we think about wind and solar being, you know, there for a foreseeable future. There's no peak there's no peak right. to that, like there's peak potentially peak oil or natural gas. I know that one one thing they've been looking at very uh, recently is what call is what's called um, methane hydrates, mm-hmm. I believe, and these are in the, in the ocean. Uh, in the ocean, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think China and Japan have uh, pilot projects to mine uh, the uh, crystals or ice formations for this because mm-hmm. that could potentially provide methane for uh, several thousand years at our current mm-hmm. consumption rate. Why don't we transition then into uh, our faith discussions about that? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't know about you, but I find you know, I, I can't really divorce my science technology background, how I approach solving problems to, you know, how I, I um, learn about Catholicism in, in a deeper sense. Your cradle Catholic. What? Um, and you know, we've all had our ups and downs. I certainly have had mine. But um, it, you know, in your journey up to this point, did you find that there were some times where where you were um, you questioned things more, or you had difficulty in in keeping the pace of attending church and and things, or has it? You've been one of those fortunate few that you've been very. Um, consistent in your practices? Well, uh, I guess I've been blessed to come to a devout Catholic family, and um, so I was raised in the faith to begin to begin with, and uh, when I got to the age where I had to start questioning things, uh, it was always the question to me of the whole ball of wax, is it true or is it not true? Because you have to ask yourself right. that question at some point. And um, to me, uh, the Christian faith especially as taught by the Catholic Church, has always seemed internally consistent. Uh, it's remarkably consistent. And as time went on, it's the only thing I find in the world which seems to make sense. Uh, because if you look at the philosophies, they all wind up being kind of nuts eventually, one way or the other. Uh, and then I started having, I'd say, a personal relationship with God uh, very early in life. and. Um, so I never really had any problem with that, but there's always the question, is this true or is this not true? And I guess fairly early on in life, I, I concluded that this is in fact true. I've certainly, certainly no one's got anything better. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I, I realized that, you know, I am a fallible human being and everything is ultimately my opinion. I mean, anything I think about the reality is my opinion because 
everything has to get processed by this gelatinous mass between my ears, right? Uh, so, but I concluded that there is really no better game in town, and I have this personal relationship with something, which seems to be a loving entity. Uh, and so, no, I, I guess I never really had any serious, what I call serious doubts about it, aside from that question you all have to go through at some point, because you have to make the transition at some point from believing something because your parents told you to believing it in your own right. And I, I made that transition, I guess, fairly early on, and it was reaffirmed as time went on. Um, and I guess I had the um, um, advantage of actually having started to learn the faith before the craziness set in the mid-60s. Yeah, yeah so no kidding. I was a, at least I knew enough to know where to go look for the answers when the time came for me to start learning this more deeply, because I certainly didn't get it from high school catechism, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, especially uh, when I moved overseas, didn't even have catechism. But um. so that's you know, you're a very lucky man, I think. I know when I talk with other Catholics, there's always some vacillation in their beliefs. I mean, I I have struggled. I struggled for decades on the whole. You know, is it the right answer or not? And I, I haven't had any you know, like sudden epiphany. It's been this slow accretion of understanding and and to your point of you know little by little it was yeah this makes more sense it's it's consistent it's internally consistent and you know a few years ago when i started to learn philosophy you know kind of 101 because i i felt i needed to understand uh you know the part of reason called philosophy in order to understand some of the questions that science couldn't answer and um, that's when it started to really become real for me as I explored other areas of reason outside of science. And uh, it helped me, you know, I, I have vacillated a lot over the years with some personal issues and other things that, that you know, I, I, but at the end of the day, it's always been, you know, I always end up in a church praying, you know, at the worst times. And, um, and, and so now I, I think I've, I'm probably not as, uh, as uh, I don't know, as as well-versed and as thorough as you, but I've, you know, it's become the center of my life. And it's, um, and I have found that, you know, getting away from science into other areas of intellectual development, um, especially with philosophy, I think that is hugely important for everyone to, to know and understand has really helped me a lot. Um, and, and to that extent, I mean, I, it's interesting. Once I started doing that, my faith became more real to me and things became more real. And, you know, after reading and consuming, you know, materials about, you know, the existence of God and the, you know, proofs for the existence of God and other things, you know, it kind of stumbled onto this one area of transubstantiation, which uh, I've started probably in the last few months, uh, taking a very deep dive into it. Um, you know, I, I've always believed it. It's a dogma of our church. It's divinely re re revealed. So, uh, but it's, it's one thing to believe in it um, because those much smarter than me have, have looked at it and have come away with, yes, this, this is the truth. 
Um, but, but, you know, as a scientist, it's always okay. So show me the details. Right. And so when you start to delve into the details, it can get really difficult really quickly. I don't know if you've had a similar experience with this or not. Not that particular thing. I mean, of course it takes some time to even try to get a grip on it. Um, you know, to me, I remember discussing the question of the real presence uh, with a friend of mine, a young friend who had been away from the church. And he said, wait, you actually, he was, born, he was raised Catholic, but I guess fell away. So, and I, we talked talk about the real presence. And I said, you really believe that? And I said, yeah, of course I believe it. But why? He says, well, the only reason to believe it is because he said so. I mean, there's no other reason to believe that, that the, of the, in the real presence at all, except that Jesus said so. I mean, you know, I can't, if you take a consecrated host and put it in a microscope, at least most of the time, you're not going to find anything other than, right. you know, bread fibers. And if you, if you take the if you take the precious blood and put it under a microscope, you're not, for the most part, you're not going to see blood cells floating around, right? No, um, I mean, no. It's, yeah, it's what, with some exceptions. <laughs> but, you know, that's a, the only reason you believe this is because he said so. And uh, if you believe uh, that the church, church, that Jesus existed and he died for his sins, that he is the eternal incarnate word and he, and he, and he founded a church, well, then you're going to believe what he tells you. And the question is, what does it mean? And I think a part of the problem is that as scientists, we tend to confuse what something is with, 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 what's, with, the, with what it's made of, to use the words of, uh, of um, I think it was C.S. Lewis who wrote the Narnia Chronicles, right? Right. And that, that's a line out of the Narnia Chronicles I thought was very, very good. Uh, and of course, most of us don't have philosophy training on any level, so uh, we don't even know what the word transubstantiation means. And unless you unless you study something of the philosophy of Aristotle and, and then Saint Thomas Aquinas, you have no idea what that means. <laughs> and to understand that the that the change that occurs uh, is not a question of its chemical composition, which is, falls under the level of accidents in the philosophical term, but right. in, in terms of what it is in a most fundamental ontological level, which is outside, about outside of our grasp. Uh, and so we understand that the, the, you know, the wetness of the thing changes, even if the appearance and the chemical formulation does not. Um, and but we believe this not because I have any physical evidence of something which I have no way of probing anyway, because there's nothing I have no way of probing the fundamental ontological reality of something, only as accidents as a scientist. Right. Uh, we deal, you know, uh, is because he said so. And the church says so. Uh, and of course, you have the various Eucharistic manifest, manifestations that have occurred from time to time to try to sort of bolster people's faith. I know people have experienced those personally. But by and large, it's that's not the case. It's you know we, we believe because he said so, and that's frankly a small thing. God can do that. He said he did it, so fine, he did it. Um, and the church has settled on this formulation. I always find it interesting that the church has defined uh, as a dogma, uh, de fide, the doctrine of transubstantiation, but has never defined uh, Thomism as being the, as part of the deposit of faith. So it's this interesting thing that we're saying that if you're losing language of Thomism, then this is the correct way of describing it. It has not made a declaration about any other about how to describe this any other philosophical system. Right. So if you're if if you are dealing with a different philosophical system, you find a completely different way to describe it, which is not really defined. Uh, of course, some say this provides the best evidence for the truth of, of Thomism, but. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, you know, that's, I would say that was one, this is one church doctor. I think I've sort of dominated my study and my, um, you know, as I try to grow in faith and, and study philosophy, how that relates to it. You know, I, I do need to branch out into some of the other church doctors. But, you know, when I study this, you know, with Aquinas, there's a, a really good book I'm reading through, which is, you know, Taking a While by Reinhard Hooter. Uh, it's basically Aquinas on transubstantiation. It's a thin book, but it's been very, very helpful because Aquinas says, you know, they, you need a metaphysical interpretation of transubstantiation to be able to describe it. But there's been a, um, so it's interesting. I, in, in reading some of the other works, there's some other explanations for, for, I guess, how it occurs. Not how, I guess, why it occurs. Um, it's, is that, uh, you know, they've, they've invoked things such as time travel, Christ being in multiple locations, other things, which I, I find uh, very, very unappealing. Um, and because it is the substance of the bread and wine that changes, not their accidents, right? They, they look the same under a microscope before and after, to your point. But there's, and, I, there, and, I can, and I can test to have similar phys, 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 physiological effects, too. I can tell that story so I learned a, bit later, a little bit later. <laughs> Um, but there's, uh, I just watched a podcast and read a paper by Joshua, uh, Sujawati from the London College of Theology. And what he's done, he's taken Jonathan Lowe's, um, metaphysical and ontological framework and applied it. And I'm, I'm in the middle of trying to understand it. So I won't go into details cause I'm not there yet. Mm-hmm. What I find very fascinating about this metaphysical and ontological framework is it, when I started reading through it, it struck me that, you know, this is the same way I describe object-oriented programming. Hmm, that's interesting. It was, it was just sort of in, in, the, in the pictures that, uh, figures that uh, Joshua uses you know, it's just, I'm looking at them like, yeah, this is object-oriented programming, so, so more or less. So <laughs> suddenly that kind of an approach was like, all right, I'm, I'm, I can make progress here probably easier than I can with some of the, you know, the time travel one, which I've, uh-huh. these other ones I've, I've kind of discounted. I can't, I, I just don't think it makes sense. Um, but so I, it, it is difficult you know, I you know, if you fully believe it occurs. Uh, it's a miracle, but um, you, you, you want you want some philosophical underpinning of it that mm-hmm. describes it for you. That is is sort of satisfying. That um, you know, I um, but let me ask you this: Would this is the same? Thing happening is that this is how is this how we would describe the fact that Christ is fully human, fully divine? Because again, if if you put Christ under a microscope, um, you know he would look like all the rest of us as fully human. But I'm wondering if there is a common philosophical explanation for that that's similar to transubstantiation. I'm going to hazard a guess not, but I'm not a philosopher, so yeah. uh, uh, 
I, I'd be a little careful about, about, to take yeah. what I say. It's just that it's, it seems to be a different process because in the case of uh, you know the the bread and the wine becoming the body and blood of Christ, there is a there is an actual change in the substance, right? Uh, and and what the and the isness of it is, and what what the things are changes, if not what they're you know what they're made of chemically. Uh, in the case of the incarnation, you are dealing with a human body which is generated from a human uh, maternal cell, an egg, and uh, either either miraculously created sperm or or an egg which is undergoing uh, fission in a miraculous way, which produces a Y chromosome somewhere in there too. We don't know how that happened exactly. We're still dealing with a, a human body, a right. regular material human body, which. Uh, which is assumed as part of human nature by the Godhead. And there's no change in the nature of the body, and there's no change in the nature of the Godhead in that. There's no alteration going on in, this, in either the eternal Godhead, which is impossible because it's eternal. Uh, and the body is, the human body is still a human body. I mean, Jesus was not a human being, but he was a man. Right. Uh, a divine being who assumed the human nature. So I would say it's, I, I'd hazard that that's a different process. And, yeah, in philosophical terms, probably put in a different way. Yeah, it's like you, as a, you know, just by force of habit, when you're learning about something, you always look for corresponding, mm-hmm. you know, examples. And this is the one that sprung to mind, which I haven't been able to find out. Mm-hmm. I was sort of hoping you had all the answers for me, but I guess that's probably. I'm working. I'm working on it, but I don't think I've all of them. It's not language <laughs> find acceptable. But I would say I would say those are different processes. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, yeah. I, is there any other area that you find, I don't want to say challenging, but kind of worthy of um, exploration to, to well, further well, our faith? I'd say pra- as a practical challenge, um, what I find the most challenging, not in terms of belief, but in terms of uh, attitude, is dealing with people who are... Uh, who are trying to hurt society, or who are trying to hurt society, especially? Uh, I mean, people who are really trying to undermine uh, the, those institutions and those habits, which work for the salvation of souls, and substitute things which are contrary to the salvation of souls. And that's legion. I mean, whether it's uh, yeah. pornographers or uh, people pushing abortion or people pushing so-called same-sex marriage, or um, you know, or trying to Put a wedge between human sexuality and reproduction, um, or you know, and of course, you know, the, going on. I mean, all the old sins that people are trying to uh, cheat people of wages, people just being nasty to each other. You know, it's to me, it's hard to maintain a charitable attitude toward people who do that, to really want their good. And yeah. That, to me, that's the most challenging thing, uh, and that's a very personal statement, obviously. And to me, that's where the, the that's where the it's not the, the problem is not belief, it's not uh, even conduct. It's an, a, maintaining internal attitude of charity to people who are appear to be trying to sabotage us and sabotage the entire human race. Yeah, I um, I've you know I grew up in in New Jersey, just outside Newark, and you know most of the um, guys I grew up with, you know, ended up in. Um, in crime in one form or another. 
And you look at the the wasted talent. You know, I remember growing up and playing baseball and sports with these guys. And, you know, some of them were just good and decent. You know, they 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 came from broken homes, but they weren't inherently evil. That's just how uh, they ended up. And, you know, I see that. I saw the people who, who I don't say forced them there, but enablers. Um, you know, one of the things I've learned, I haven't been in the business world so long, is, you know, every, on everybody's lips are the word supply chain. Suddenly everybody's an expert on supply chain. They've lived and breathed them for a long time. Um, you know, sex is still one of the most um, profitable areas. Um, you know, the, the sex supply chain, uh, especially coming out of Africa, it's, it's, it's um, very profitable and people uh, make uh, incredible livings off of selling uh, bodies. And it, that's one thing that I find I just, uh, I, I just so difficult to internalize how people can be that, that evil. And you're right, you know, Bishop Barron says, you know, love is willing the good of the other. There are some people, I don't know how, I don't think how hard I tried, I'll never will their good. I, 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 yeah, you, 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 you want to immortalize the bombs, really? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, there are times when I've kind of mentally disfigured somebody because of what they've done and you've got to stop yourself and, and, and mm-hmm. say, no, that's, you can't do that. And mm-hmm. you're right. It's, I think that's one of our biggest challenges is, is the world has gotten so much more you know, embraced postmodernism, embraced, um, you know, that God is, is just a superstition and doesn't exist. Um, you know, it's, it's a real challenge for the church and our internal divisions in the church just sort of sometimes make it hard to, to uh, figure out how, how do you, how do you, you know, externalize your belief and, and help others. When, you know, you have our problems thrown in your face constantly. Um, yeah, it's, I, I, I think a lot of us are in the same boat that you're in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of, I mean, you, you know, you, you move in our circles and you do, whether it's academia or the church or wherever, you deal primarily with nice people. You do, even the people you have violent disagreements have right. the strangest ideas. They're fundamentally people you don't mind having as your neighbors. You're not going to be, and they're not going to. You're not at risk by living next door to them or anything like that. But you know, it's it's for us. It's kind of a shock when you when you run into people. You just realize there are people out there who are not like that. Yeah. And um, it's hard to make, it's hard to maintain that kind of uh, love for them and wish their goodwill and want them to be saved and. You know, I have to keep reminding myself, God does not wish the death of the sinner, but his, his conversion that he may live. I mean, because God has created everyone for greatness and everyone for the beatific vision, fundamentally. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, one thing that's helped me out, too, in the last year, I've started doing the Liturgy of the Hours. I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. It's not a habit yet. I've, you know, it's, I've tried to make it uh, habitual, uh, but that's started to help um, help with you know, with my, my dealing with this issue. Um, I find that to be really, it's helped my prayer life, certainly. Um, sure. um, and the fact it's on my tablet makes it you know, that much easier. Yeah. <laughs> I, re- I remember our parish priest when I was an altar boy way back in the 60s, late 60s, 
he would do it, but he had this big book and it had about 10 or 15 ribbons he'd have to flip between. And yeah. uh, uh, it was, and nowadays it's just right on the tablet. You just have to scroll down and it's all there for you. So there's no excuse, I guess. Mm-hmm. Listen, Richard, is there anything else you wanted to, to cover today? We've talked a lot about energy and our spiritual lives, but is there anything else you wanted to cover? Well, it's mildly off topic, not entirely. Uh, I have a pet peeve. Uh, about the way we engage culture. Uh, because every so often you'll, some issue will come up um, and someone will come out and stick a microphone under some Catholic's nose and say, what do you think of X issue? And the first thing people say is, well, the Pope says this. Or the Catechism says this. You know, and, and people don't seem to understand that as soon as you start and it's been the case in this country for a long time. As soon as you start with, the Pope says this, that's a signal to the party just to stop listening. Yep, yeah, exactly. And nowadays it's gotten worse. If you say the Bible says this, or you know, then this is a license to the side to stop listening because, well, they're not religious. They're not, they weren't Catholic before. Now they're not religious. Therefore, why do they care? That's correct. Why would they care? Uh, you know, and I think that we really have to uh, avoid this business of, of failing to meet the other party where they are. And one of these things is that when you're going to argue a point on anything, you have to argue from a common basis, something they accept to begin with. And quoting the Pope is not it. Yeah. For mo- in most cases. Yeah. Um, and I also, we also let ourselves be pushed into the ghetto. Um, for example, let's take abortion. I mean, this is classic. There was a conference at the White House, and Jen Psaki was taking questions, and somebody asked about Joe Biden's odd stance on abortion, why he's so pro-abortion. And Jen Psaki, Psaki did not answer the question. She said, "President Biden's a devout Catholic," you know, which has absolutely zero correspondence right. to the question. It was not about his faith; it was about his stance on abortion. Well, we've allowed uh, the other side to try to present this as a sectarian religious issue. And by doing that, they've essentially allowed them to stop thinking and to stop having to defend. And I think we have to start, when it it comes to these matters of natural law, things which should be accepted by everybody and are generally accepted by most sane societies, I mean, that you don't kill your children, and that you know, marriage is something only between a man and a woman. It can't be anything else, no matter what the law might say or the courts might say. We really have to argue from a common basis and not just start letting these things be turned into sectarian religious issues or esoteric religious issues, because they're not esoteric religious issues. Right. Um, and I would say that when we deal with um, the public, we really have to learn to not fall into that trap, because we have to force our countrymen to think and by giving them license to just write these things off as though those funny things that Catholics or Christians believe or, or evangelical Southerners or whatever, I mean, we're just not, not doing them a service nor a country a service. You know, one of the things I find really frustrating is when the person I'm talking to conflates all Christians into one denomination. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, they'll say to me, well, how can you be a scientist and believe in you know, that the earth is 6,600 years old. 
Yeah. And I said, I don't. I said, I think the latest number was like 13, 14 billion years. Well, yeah, but you're Catholic. You have, don't you believe in the literal, literal interpretation of the Bible? And I said, no. I said, and I tried to explain it to him, but there's this very difficult barrier to overcome to convince them that, um, you know, they have a belief system that's built up over time and they listen to, you know, their favorite podcasters or commentators and they've, and they have this echo chamber and it's very difficult to break through that to try to convince them otherwise. I think my, you know, my biggest challenge has always been first telling, you know, trying to convince people that your opinion of me is incorrect. You, you need to view me differently. And, um, you know, the, the new atheists, of course, have taken very old, um, uh, questions about God, objections to God that were settled by Augustine by his time and have re, resurfaced them. And, you know, people think that these are, these are amazing objections and they're not, they're, they're, and it's, it becomes very difficult to kind of break through that and to change people's minds to your point. You know, they're, 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 uh, you know, they think they. I think one of the things is they find it easy not to believe in God. It just makes their life easier in some regards. Uh, but yeah, I, I've, I've, I really object to being conflated with other Christian religions, since ours is, you know, Catholicism is is a very rich theological and philosophical um, religion. Um, that you know, and, and this is the other thing they don't. I find difficult to, uh, you know, or people find difficult to understand is, you know, the Bible isn't a set of instructions. We're we're meant to continually push our knowledge of our understanding of the Bible and the Word of God. And just like with, you know, we talked today about transubstantiation. Sure, we believe it, but, you know, there's a lot of work to be done to understand it. Um, and, and, you know, that doesn't, that kind of work doesn't stop. Um, and so, I, you know, I, 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 I don't know about you. I just find it very frustrating to have to try to explain to people that, uh, no, I don't, I don't think the Bible's literal and to, you know, this is a creative process, uh, as a, as a Catholic in understanding in, in pushing the frontiers of our knowledge. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're suffering from a couple of different things. Uh, one is it, before, given that the uh, the Protestant nature of the country, the education institution was oriented against the Catholic Church generally, which is why we started the Irish started the Catholic school system, uh, and they dealt with stereotypes. And then since then, just starting in the '60s and thereafter, it became as religion in general became taboo on the uh, public school campuses by virtue of manipulation of the court system. Uh, you have people who are being kept completely in the dark about not just the religious roots of the country, of course, and also just what Christianity even is. They really don't yeah. know. It's Correct. Just, and since we are dominated, our areas are dominated by, um, you know, if you turn on the television or the radio, you're, you're not going to get a Catholic until fairly recently, thanks to relevant radio and other Catholic stations that have come on lately. Uh, but after Archbishop Sheen left the air, there was nothing, and all you yeah. had were Protestant ministers, and that was the only exposure people had to 
the Christian religion was whatever the televangelists were doing because they weren't going to church on Sunday. Yep. Uh, you know, and that's, so that's their entire picture of Christianity. So now we have to deal with that. Um, and of course, see, that's a lot of, of course, a lot of Catholics think the same way because they weren't taught the faith starting in the mid sixties going forward. So, uh, yeah, we have to do a lot of prejudices, um, which are not really the fault of the people who have them, but it's their problem and our problem because that's the, the, they're, they're filling in the gaps of their education with whatever they can find. And it's all wrong. Um, my, uh, I remember my, my children, when they started their, their religious education, um, I was appalled at what our church was teaching mm-hmm. uh, to the extent they yanked them out. And I just struck a deal with the head of religious education at our church. That I would homeschool them. And the only time they would go there is for uh, first communion and confirmation. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, when my son came home and said that, oh, yeah, th- our goal today was to find God in this leaf. I said, do they ever read the Bible? He goes, no, don't even see one in the room. I'm like, okay, this has got to stop. And, you know, I, I would really resonate for me too early on was when Bishop Barron talked about beige Catholicism and, you know, you witness priests, you know, he said he had one ride a motorcycle up the, the, the aisle to the altar. It's I cringe, absolutely cringe. And, and, um, so, yeah, I, um, I, I think it's a huge challenge for us. Um, and it's, but I think that to, to turn the tide, there has to be a lot more, to your point, a lot more um, intellectual development amongst our children and, and their parents and others to uh, start to, to, to move the needle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and imagine if you try to be, be a scientist with your, phys- with your physics education stopping at sixth grade. <laughs> That's, a yet, p- That's a great point. That's a great point. People are trying to be practicing whatever religion you are uh, with religious education stopped at sixth grade or before. Uh, and of course we're going to have problems. We're, we're adults operating with a, a, you know, a, a child's knowledge set, and naturally yeah. it's not going to work. Right. And if, if you're lucky... If you're among those of us who said, "Okay, I need, I have to learn more," and you go on your own and find and learn the stuff, you'll come out okay. But if you aren't, well, then the first thing that comes along is going to knock you off your saddle because you have no way of explaining, much less defending anything. Right. You know. Um, yeah, I. Uh, it's it's a challenge. I, I want to fully accept, and it's uh, you know, I hope to get to the point where I can. Um, um, do a better job in uh, addressing it and addressing the culture and, and, and being able to, um, you know, have an impact on people. I don't know if that'll ever happen, but it's certainly a, a goal of mine. It, clearly a goal of yours. I, you do a great job. I, again, I was really happy with the gold mass. Hopefully we'll have another one. Is that going to be an annual event, by the way? Well, that remains to be seen. Uh, I would like to have a conversation with the people who came to the mass and talk about whether or not they'd like to see this be an annual event and whether or not uh, we should form a formal chapter of the society and if so, what its role would be uh, and how it could be a source of the diocese and uh, a means of assisting our own formation intellectually and in yeah. faith. So these are, this is a conversation I'd like to have with everyone who attended and, yeah. uh, and because I'm, you know, it's not that hard to organize these things. I went, I went an extra couple miles making dinner and not and not just catering snacks appreciate that by the way yeah but i figured given the timing and everything it's best to feed people 
and and uh, and of course the speaker was absolutely perfect i, I mean yeah Corey, Corey Hayes, Hayes. Was absolutely perfect yeah yeah he um i took a lot of notes during a talk and his point toward the uh, in the, where how science and religion or reason and religion you know mutually beneficial um uh, you know that really struck a, a strong chord with me and um i had a good discussion with them afterwards and then a few by email uh so yeah that was a good that was a, that was a wonderful uh choice he has a number of youtube videos uh, about the galileo fair which were really, I, I was very um, glad I watched them because I learned a lot from them. Um, and I'll probably put those at the bottom of the podcast here to, for people to, to go. But yeah, it was a great uh, uh, explanation of the entire fair. Mm-hmm. Um, well, with that, listen, thanks so much for joining me on this. It's been a pleasure having you. I'm glad. You know, we met at the Gold Mass, and and that was a wonderful experience. And um, I look forward to, to talking with you again. And and uh, um, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Sure. And if I may leave a closing thought. Sure. Uh, you know, I think we as scientists, engineers, and technologists really have to uh, appreciate our role uh, in as scientists coming to know God through creation, introducing people to God's wonder through creation. Because one thing that science has certainly done, which theologians have failed to do, is to uh, give us a better idea of the grandeur of creation and therefore the grandeur of God. I mean, our understanding of the universe is certainly, in this sheer magnitude and variety, is certainly much greater than it was in the 1600s or even the 1900, early 1900s. And that, that has told me a lot about the grandeur of God. and. The fact that in a universe, which just our own universe alone, which, which you can observe, much less what other realities there might be, uh, at least the possibility that they could be populated with who knows how many beings that are rational and capable of worshiping God, and yet he, uh, we're dealing with somebody who can care about a single individual on a single lonely rock that takes up you know, and floating through space. And I find that just mind-blowing. Yeah. I find it just mind-blowing. Yeah, I, it's a great topic for conversation another time, but I agree with you. It's it's one of these things I I wish I could understand further. Um, but, well, listen, Richard, again, thanks again. Um, good luck, and uh, we'll talk soon. Oh, thank you much, Tim. It's good, to, good talking to you. Take care. Same here. Else.